Well, good morning. You know, it is wonderful to see each of your faces here this morning. For those of you who are online, can't see your faces, but it's wonderful to have you here with us. Thank you for joining us here on this beautiful Sunday morning. Let's begin our time of worship in His Word by a time of, of prayer before the Lord of the Word. Join me. Lord God, our Heavenly Father, our, t- our Eternal King, before time ever existed, You were already there. And after this world is gone, You will still be there and You will usher us into eternity to spend forever with You. You are the first. You're the last. You're everything in between. You are faithful. As we come to the book of Revelation and we discover these first three chapters together and the the truths that are held here about our Lord Jesus Christ, and the truths that are held here about Your church, our church, this church. Father, it is our prayer that, that You would open up our eyes to the truth that is here. Pray that we would take comfort in Your faithfulness. That we would take comfort in the truth that You share with us here. Might it change our lives as we walk in obedience to You. Help each one of us here to have ears to hear. Might we listen. Might our minds be engaged and understand. And might our entire selves be ushered into response as we obey Your Word today. Please guide us and teach us, we pray. Amen. Well, a few years back, I discovered an organization called the Cloud Appreciation Society. Now, back then, they had over 35,000 members. In the last several years since I first found this group, uh, they've been adding members every year. And for $50 a year, you can pay your dues and be a part of the Cloud Appreciation Society, too. But here's their, their appreciation manifesto that they have on their website. I thought this was interesting. We believe that clouds are unjustly maligned and that life would be immeasurably poorer without them. We think that they are nature's poetry and the most egalitarian of her displays since everyone can have a fantastic view of them. We pledge to fight blue sky thinking wherever we find it. Life would be dull if we had to look up at a cloudless monotony day after day. Keep in mind, this is their manifesto. We seek to remind people that clouds are expressions of the atmosphere's moods and can be read like those of a person's countenance. Clouds are so commonplace that their beauty is often overlooked. They are for dreamers and their contemplation benefits the soul. Indeed, all who consider the shapes they see in them will save on psychoanalysis bills. And so we say to all who listen, look up, marvel at the ephemeral beauty, and live life with your head in the clouds. And so for $50, you can also become a member of the Cloud Appreciation Society. Or you can just look up at the clouds and appreciate them, right? Well, you know, most of us have, at one time or another, we've looked up into the clouds, and we've daydreamed. We've seen shapes sailing by. We've imagined elephants trampling in their parade. And, and there's, this, there's a certain joy that comes from watching clouds and their beauty, and the beauty of God's creation. For some of us, the joy is in the rain that the clouds bring. Uh, if you remember, there's a, a passage in 1 Kings, Elijah prayed for rain, and the sky was blue, and there wasn't a cloud in the sky, and he prayed, Lord, bring rain. 
And, and, and lo and behold, if you, you looked out over the horizon, there's a one small little cloud. And that cloud moved in, and before he knew it, uh, it was, it was, uh, the sky was gray, and, the, and that became a great storm. But for Christians, in the New Testament, there's another joy in watching clouds. And it's associated with a promise that He made when our Savior ascended into heaven. When He was taken up, if you remember, the disciples met Jesus in Galilee. And there Jesus was taken up from their presence. And as He said goodbye and to wait for Me, He ascended into heaven. And when He did so, He was taken up by his disciples, from His disciples and they were looking and a cloud obscured His view. And, and, and he disappeared from, from their, their sight. And so there is all the disciples. And Luke tells us that they were, they were watching up into the sky. I mean, Jesus just disappeared in their presence. And so they're looking up. You know, where, where did he go? Where is he? There, there's the cloud. Where, and, and then all of a sudden, there were two men, two angels standing next to them. And the angels said to the disciples, um, Men of Galilee, wake up, pay attention. Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw Him go into heaven. Then Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that one day we will be caught up together with them in the clouds, those who have died before us. We will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, you know, clouds are, are beautiful. And, and we appreciate clouds, even if you don't have a membership to do so. But, but as we continue in our study of the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, we discover the reasons for which we joyfully watch the clouds. There's three reasons that God gives us in this passage for why we joyfully watch for the clouds for our Savior Jesus Christ. Now, the last time that we began our study, we discovered that Revelation is a book that God wants you to understand. A lot of people don't have that perspective. A lot of people hear Revelation and, and their minds automatically shut off and say, whoop, too much for me. I can't go there. But, but as we saw from the very first words of this book, God wants you to understand the book of Revelation. Back when Daniel was written in, in the days of the, the, the sage in Babylon, what he was shown, it was, it was told it was, it was shut up. It was It was sealed. God tells Daniel, he says, this stuff is for a long time in the future. These are many days away. Many prophecies would need to be fulfilled before the things that Daniel was shown would come to take place. But when God gives this prophecy in the book of Revelation to John, John, John is told, don't seal it up. It's open. Don't seal it up. Behold, I'm coming very quickly. And not only this, we have also discovered that not only does God want you to understand it, not only is it for a time that could happen at any moment, but we also discovered that God wants to spoil the end for you and me. And the reason He wants to do so and spoil the end of the story is because He tells us the one who reads the book of Revelation, the one that listens to the book of Revelation, and the one who obeys Revelation will experience the blessings of God in their life. You know, some people search for that their entire lives. There are some people that are craving God's blessing on their life in some form, any form. And they look for it and they wait for it and they're wanting it and they never receive it. But God says right here, read this. Listen to this. 
and you obey this, and I will bless you. What, what an amazing promise, isn't it? What an amazing promise that God says, I will bless you if you listen to these words, if you obey these words. So let's start by reading the first part of our text, and I encourage you to read with me and listen. First, uh, excuse me, um, Re- Revelation uh, chapter 1, let's start with verse 4. The text begins and says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now, it's important that we understand context, um, the context that, that this letter uh, has. Now, and that, hear that right. This book, the entire book of Revelation, is a letter that's written to ch- the church. There's a letter from the Apostle John to the seven churches in, uh, in what is now modern-day Turkey. Uh, and from the, the testimony of the church fathers, we're told that John served the early church a, a, as one of its founding leaders. But this disciple, who was probably the youngest of all of the twelve disciples, uh, he had a special task that was given by Jesus at the cross to take care of his mother, Jesus' mother, Mary. And uh, we're told from the early church that he faithfully did that for about 15 years. He took care of Mary, he provided for her, and then eventually he ended up in Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, where he served as the overseer for several different churches that had previously been planted by the Apostle Paul. And his home base seems to have been the city of Ephesus, and so when you read Ephesians, that's the church of Ephesus, and Paul had planted the church there, Apollos, a lot of great, great early leaders had been in that church, Timothy was there, and now John was there. And that seems to be the base for which he reached all these other churches. And then under the persecution of some of the Roman empires, we're told that John was taken prisoner. Uh, as a prisoner, we're told that he was, he was tortured, uh, he was boiled in oil, uh, and he survived. And, and then later on, he was banished to a small island in the Aegean Sea called Patmos. And it was there that he received this revelation. Now the recipients of revelation, uh, we're told, were seven churches. And these seven churches were scattered along the main postal circuit in the western portion of Asia Minor. And they're ordered in Revelation clockwise. And so it begins with Ephesus on the, on the, on the coast. And then it goes north to Pergamum. And it goes around, around this hub and ends up in the south at Laodicea. And then most likely, though, these seven churches, they were, they were the hub from where um, the, the message would be received by them and then it would go out from each of those churches to all the towns and all the villages and the other cities around them. And so from Ephesus, they would go to Laodicea and to Colossae uh, where, where the letter of Colossians was written at a different time. And so, um, so these seven letters were, 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 would go out from there. But it's important to recognize that, that these were real churches that, that received a real letter from John. A, a book. And Revelation is not just some out-there book that, that nobody can understand. It was, written, it was written to these churches, these church bodies, for their encouragement. It was written to them for their edification. And it was given by our Lord for these churches in that entire region to be blessed. And then it was passed on to you. 
And I think that part of the reason that Jesus chose seven in that ancient, is that in ancient times, across many cultures, seven was seen as a, as a complete number. It, it, um, it, it feels finished. And seven conveys the idea that, that this book, that this book that we're reading today is more than just a complete, uh, 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 it's more than just uh, a, a group of specific churches, though they were particular churches that it was written to, but this book is for every believer. This book is for you. It's for every church. And God wants the Wit Evangelical Free Church to listen, and, and He'll make that clear later on as well. But the first thing that we find in our study is that we, we joyfully watch the clouds because He has given us grace and peace. Now, it may be easy to overlook a general salutation like this. Usually when you read a letter and it says, Dear Tom, you know, we, we read it, we know what it means, and we, we move on. But, but the words are important. And, and this was the equivalent of, of Dear Tom. But when, when Dear Tom is written by that special someone, every word is, is lingered over. And when, when Tom or George or, or Bob reads that, that letter from that girl back home, he's going to ask himself, what did she mean when she said, Dear Tom? What, what, what does she really mean behind, the, behind those words? And he's going to linger over every word and he's going to remind himself of what, what did she intend by those. And it's the same way as we read these early pages of, of, of this letter to the, these seven churches. Every word is important and we should linger over what our God intended to pour out on us. We're reminded that He pours out His grace. Grace is something, that, that is something good that someone gives to you which you don't deserve. Grace is God's favor, His goodness. And we live in a world that's wrapped up with the idea of, of what bad thing is going to happen next. But God wants us to have a different perspective than that. God calls us to a perspective over, uh, that, that, we would, um, that we would see the good that He gives us. Even when it's wrapped up in, in different hardships, God is pouring out His grace. We're also told that God pours out His peace. Uh, peace in the Scripture is, is well-being. In the Old Testament, we call it shalom. Uh, in, in, in the New Testament, the, the word peace is, is used very often. Um, but to receive God's peace is to experience the harmony of walking with Him and enjoying zero conflict, zero war, zero animosity with the Creator of the universe. We're no longer battling with the God who made us. And so all is well with my soul. No matter what trials are going on around me, I have peace with God and He blesses my soul with the same spiritual health that there is in, in our relationship with Him. You know, isn't it interesting that most people when they read the book of Revelation, um, they read it as a book that causes confusion. They read it as a book that, that there's, uh, this, this is just chaos here. When you read the book of Revelation, do you associate grace and peace with it? Is that what we usually think of first thing? But the first thing that he tells us here is God wants His grace and His peace to come to you. This book was written during days of, of great persecution. The people that, that read this, this letter, this final book of, of the New Testament, the, the people were in a time of, of great persecution. The Roman emperors and the Roman Empire was persecuting the church and it was, was starting to develop like it had never done before. And Christians were being killed. Christians were being imprisoned for their faith. And likewise, we live in a world also 
that, that is increasing in its animosity toward the message of the Gospel. We live in a world that is increasing in its animosity towards God's people. And so, it shouldn't surprise us. In fact, God told Timothy earlier, said that all who desire to live godly in Christ will be persecuted. Uh, but this book was written to a group of people that were being persecuted, but, but it was written so that they would be encouraged. And God wants you to be encouraged as well. And there's three reasons why we can experience grace and peace that we're told about in this passage. We can experience God's grace and peace because number one, the giver is the eternal Father. Look at with me again as we examine these verses. He says, grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come. You see, the, the giver of grace and peace is, is God the eternal Father. And John uses, if you, if you read the New Testament grammar, he uses some really weird grammar. And, and most commentaries, as they, as they get to this verse in verse 4, they pause and say that the grammar here is just, it doesn't sound right in Greek. There's something wrong with it. But I believe that he's doing that not to throw the reader off, not because John never went to school or, or never, never learned how to read and write, but he uses this weird grammar here because he wants to draw their attention to who this God is when he says the God who is and who was and who is to come. And what he's doing is he's taking them back to Exodus, that passage that we just finished uh, just recently. And you remember when God met with Moses, how he described himself? Moses comes to Yahweh and he says, uh, he says okay, God, who, who shall I tell them? Who shall I tell them that, 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 that sent me? And he says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Later on, Jesus is going to do that same thing when He's talking to the Pharisees and the people of Israel. He associates Himself with God's divine name, Yahweh, the I Am. And He says, before Abraham was, I Am. Now, Jesus, was His grammar just off? Did Jesus just not get it? No, He's specifically saying, look, I'm Yahweh. I am the one who before Abraham even existed, I already was. I am. And so it's not bad grammar, it's a specific association with God's name. And John's doing the same thing here and, uh, by building on that concept. He says this is God, the eternal God. He exists outside of time. He has always been. He is right now and He will always be. He exists and He is also present in our lives. The great I Am is here. And because you serve the eternal Father, you are beneficiaries of God's goodness and God's peace. And God, and, and God wants you to understand that His grace and His peace comes to your life because He is the eternal Father. But God's grace and peace also come from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now, I don't know about you, when I read that, I go, the seven spirits before His throne. Is that how you normally hear? Uh, do you, is that a phrase you normally are familiar with? The seven spirits which are before His throne. And I've heard some really weird teaching about this passage. It was um, the blasphemous TV evangelist Benny Hinn. Uh, he once said that God's not three persons. And based on a really skewed, weird reading of this passage, he says God is actually 21 persons because there's seven spirits and there's seven fathers and seven sons. And it just goes really way off. And he calculated this based on this horrible misunderstanding of this passage. Um, I calculate that as just plain empty-headed babble, but what, what, when you look at this passage, you have to ask yourself, what in the world is John saying here? What is he talking about 
when he says God's grace and peace come from the seven spirits before God's throne. And he uses that same picture three times. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 5, we're told that there are seven torches of fire burning before the throne. And he specifically explains that these are the seven spirits of God. In chapter 5, he says the same seven spirits of God are sent out into all the earth. And the Lamb is described as having seven eyes, which are the seven spirits. Now, I want you to understand that God wants us to understand this book of Revelation. But He didn't promise that it's always going to be easy. There's some challenges as we go along. And one of the factors that that we need to remember as we read the book of Revelation in its entirety, or even just these first three chapters that we're going to be focusing on, um, one of the things that's important is you have to understand that if you're reading through the book of Revelation, John quotes the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book of the Bible. And so if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand that there's a lot of references to a lot of obscure Old Testament passages that his audience, his Jewish audience, would have been very familiar with. But some of us who are not as familiar with the Old Testament, we have to slow down and say, what's he talking about here? And, and that's what's going on right here in this passage. Uh, he's actually quoting, I believe, from the book of Zechariah. And Zechariah is going to help us out a lot on this one. You see, the prophet Zechariah was shown a vision when he looked, and in his vision, he saw two olive trees. And there are these two olive trees standing one beside the other, and in between those olive trees, there was a lampstand. And this lampstand was somehow connected to these olive trees. Now, why would you connect a lampstand that's filled with oil directly into an olive tree? What would you think the purpose of that might be? You don't ever have to fill it, do you? That lampstand is going to keep on burning forever and ever. And if you remember the Old Testament law, when the the priests would come to the tabernacle, and then later on they came to the temple, one of the jobs in the temple was one of the priests, day and night, there was always a rotation of priests. And what was their job? Make sure that lampstand is always filled with oil. And somebody always had to go in. They had to go out. They'd have to harvest olives from an olive tree. They'd have to press them. They'd have to go through this whole process of getting this pure olive oil. And then they would, they would come to the, the lampstand and they would fill it. And every, every day, that lampstand had to be topped off. But here in Zechariah's vision, there's this lampstand and it's connected right into these olive trees. And so this oil supply is never going to run out in this vision that Zechariah is having. And in between those olive trees was this lampstand with seven lamps that were supplied by a bowl that received its constant supply of oil from these two trees. And so when he looked, he did pretty much what most of us are doing. Um, he, he looked at this vision and, and he said, what are these? And the angel that's with him said, don't you know? Come on, Zechariah, don't you know what the olive trees are? Don't you know what the lampstand is? You're getting this great vision from God. Zechariah, you don't know what all this means? And Zechariah replied, "Um, no, (laughs) I don't get it. And so the angel explains to him, and he says this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. How many of you have heard that verse before? How many of you knew that that came from this weird vision about two olive trees? Kind of an obscure passage, and we like quoting that one little verse, but there's a bigger picture going on in Zechariah. And you see, he went on to explain that Zerubbabel, the governor of the land, that he was going to complete God's task in Zechariah's day. Not by Zechariah's own strength, and not by Zerubbabel's own strength, but by the Spirit. 
And God's grace would be poured out on Zerubbabel and therefore the people of Judah. There was a picture, there was a picture of a lampstand that never had to be resupplied with more oil. The supply for Zerubbabel would never run out. And their conversation goes on. You can look at that passage in more detail. But, but John, in, in John chapter 1, he's actually referring, I believe, to this passage in Zechariah. And at this point, he uses this picture and he points to God's... Excuse me. And his point is that we experience God's grace as believers in Jesus Christ. You and I experience God's grace the same way that Zerubbabel did. That we are plugged into a source... And back in Zechariah, he talks about these seven spirits, these seven lampstands. In the same way that Zerubbabel experienced God's grace, you and I also experience God's grace and God's power because the Holy Spirit who dwells in us provides a supply of His grace and His power, what we need to accomplish His purposes. And that supply for you never runs out. Aren't you thankful that you serve a God who is eternal? Aren't you thankful that you serve a God who never lacks what you need? There is never a time when God says, hey, I have a job for you. Oh, you're going to have to go out and find your own stuff because I just don't have the strength for this one. Never. If God tells you to do something and He gives you a task, no matter how big, no matter how small, no matter how overwhelming that sin looks to you, there is never a time that God says, I don't have enough for you. He's always provided for what you need. And so God's grace and peace come from the eternal Father. And God's grace and peace come from the powerful, this powerful Spirit, the Holy Spirit. However, God's grace and peace also come, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. Now again, John's alluding to several other Old Testament passages, but this time he's, he's taking us back primarily to Psalm chapter 89, verse 37. In the context of the passage, the psalmist is proclaiming that David's throne is going to last forever. And God promises there will be a king who will one day sit on David's throne and he will rule over the people. In fact, God goes on to promise that that king the king himself shall endure forever. His throne shall last as long as the sun shines in the sky. And then verse 37, he says this, Like the moon, it shall be established forever. A faithful witness in the skies. And so, John here compares Jesus to the moon. Now, I've been around for a few years, and ever since I was a child, I would go outside, and at some point, that the moon comes up over the horizon. And if the moon's not in the sky, I know that it's somewhere over in China or somewhere else on the other side of the world shining down on them. And, and shortly thereafter, that moon's going to come up. And sure enough, what happens? That moon comes around. There it is again. It, it, it may have different shapes each day, but, but each month it goes through its rotation and, and it gives light at night and, and we enjoy its beauty. Has that been an experience for everybody else? Has the moon been a faithful witness? Has anybody ever seen the moon fall or break up? It's been there, right? As long as humankind's been here, that moon's been there. And so Jesus is compared to this moon which faithfully traverses the sky time after time again. But there's a, there's a bigger picture. You see, you and I can experience God's grace and peace because Jesus is the King. 
He's not only the faithful one, but He's the King Himself. The Son of David whose reign shall last forever. And not only this, not only is He the faithful witness, and not only is He the King who will rule, but Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. Now, the firstborn, we usually think of just the firstborn being you know, the oldest son. And we think of it being a, a title of um, you know, the, the order of birth. But, but in New Testament times, the, the idea of being the firstborn, it, it had a connotation of, of being the one who has priority. The one who has preeminence. The firstborn of the family was the one who had the authority and the power. And so think about this. From Adam and Eve until now, about every single human being that has lived on the face of the earth has died, and they've been buried, and there they've remained ever since, right? How many of you know somebody personally that was put in the ground, and then a few weeks later, or a couple years later, uh, they came back home and said, hey, I'm back. Anybody been there? Nobody seen one of those happen? I haven't. But, but Jesus changed all that. During His resurrection, many Old Testament saints rose from the dead. And one day we're told that New Testament saints will be resurrected at the rapture. And because Jesus lives, death has been conquered. But this verse also comes from Psalm 99 where the psalmist declares, He shall cry to Me, You are My Father, My God, and the Rock of My salvation, and I will make Him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. And so the stress of this passage is that Jesus is faithful. Jesus conquered death. And Jesus is the ruler over all kings. And one day, they will all bow. Today, He reigns from heaven and nothing happens that He is not allowed in His sovereign plan. So how sure is God's goodness for His people? How sure is God's peace? How certain is it that God's grace and God's peace are available to you? Does it depend on your mood? Does God's grace and God's peace that He's provided for you, does it depend on the news cycle? No. Scripture tells us that God's grace and God's peace that He wants to pour out in your life is as sure as the Father is the eternal God. God's grace and God's peace that He's given to you is not dependent on what you can do for Him, but it is as sure and as certain as the Holy Spirit will never run out of a supply of power for what you need. God's grace and God's peace is as certain as Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And God wants you to understand. And He wants you to experience His grace and His peace because this is the kind of God that we serve. The triune God who pours out His gifts upon us. So we joyfully watch the clouds in anticipation for the return of Jesus. But we also joyfully watch the clouds because He is glorious and powerful. Let's continue on. Middle of verse 5, He says, "...to Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom." Priests to be his priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so at this point, uh, John just he breaks out in what we call a, a, a doxology. That's a fancy way of saying an offering of, of praise. 
John just can't contain himself. And he says, I just have to praise this awesome God that has given us so much grace and peace. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And, and John gets it. John is, is, is seeing all this and he's getting this revelation from God that has re- revealed it through an angel by Jesus. And John gets it and he says, wow! This is all about Jesus. And I walked with Him. I talked with Him. I knew Him. I, I experienced Jesus on this earth. But this is absolutely amazing. This is what He promised. And, and as He's witnessing these things, He says, all glory be to His name. Over the course of of this series, it is our objective to examine the letters that Jesus wrote to these seven churches. He wants us to peek in and He wants us to see ourselves as individuals in those letters. And He wants us to examine DeWitt and ask ourselves, what would Jesus see if, if He visited our town? What would Jesus see if He came in and sat down among us? And what would He have to say to us? What would the Spirit say? Before we tear open each one of those letters, one of those envelopes to each of those seven churches, it is just as important for us to examine who Jesus is. Because you see, Revelation, Revelation chapter 1 pictures Christ as walking in the midst of the churches. And He walks in our midst as well. And John gives us a glimpse of what Jesus is like particularly as Jesus relates to these churches and as He relates to us. And so as we anticipate His glorious appearing, it remains important for us to understand one of the reasons why we joyfully watch the clouds, that it is that Jesus is glorious and powerful. If we read the end of the verse 6, John declared, "...to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever." We've discussed this before that, that we can't add to Jesus' glory, can we? Can, can you ever give God, God more glory so that he, He's more glorious than He was before? So what does it mean when we glorify Him? What do we mean when we say that? It means that I'm, I'm recognizing the glory that's already His. I'm giving Him credit for the glory that is His, for the strength that He accomplishes His work through us. And John gives us three reasons why Jesus is worthy of all praise. Why He's worthy of receiving all the credit for everything that He accomplishes through His people. First, He is glorious in His love for us. The Almighty Creator of the universe who rules over every galaxy, every molecule in the far distant reaches of the universe. He sees all things. He knows all things. And yet this God who created the entire universe looks down through his microscope into the details of life on earth. And he chose an amoeba like me. You know, per- paramecium like you. And he said, that one. I love that one. I choose this one. And then he did something remarkable. He stepped into our lives. He stepped into our infinitesimally small world and He became one of us. And His glory and His strength are put on display in the great acts of His love towards us in which Jesus died on the cross. 
And so John says we need to give glory and honor and give Him credit for the amazing, amazing, incredible God that He is. First of all, because He is glorious in His love for you and me. But He didn't stop there. He's also glorious in His saving us. We're told that He freed us from our sins by His blood. He became one of us, but then He allowed us to attack Him like the parasites that we are. And His blood was spilled out as an offering so that He could pay the penalty of sin that not one of us could pay. Not even for ourselves. And so He freed us. Our previous Master was sin itself. And we served it. We longed to satisfy its desires. We lived every moment to oblige its demands. Even when we were performing good works. Even when we were doing things that the rest of the world would say, wow, what a great person that guy is. That's what I want to be like. Look at this good person, this good moral person. Even in those moments when we were doing something that looked so wonderful and honorable, it was never done for the honor and motivated out of serving our Creator. And sin was a master that abused us. It tormented us, only offering us death as our wages. But Jesus freed us from that wretched master and He redeemed us for Himself. But it doesn't stop there. You see, He is glorious in His transforming us. Not only did He love us and free us from sin, but Jesus also made us, He tells us here in the passage, He made you and me to be a kingdom of priests. you know what a priest is? What is a priest? Is it just a person who wears fancy garments? Are we all supposed to come to church wearing fancy clothes? Should we start expecting everybody to wear a tie and suit? Because you're all priests? Is that what it's talking about? No, the only, the only clothing that He requires of you is the white robes of Jesus' righteousness. Being a priest means that you have direct access to the throne of God. You are a mediator between God and men. You are one who, who can pray for others. You are one who can come before His presence and ask on behalf of others. He chose you to display His grace. He chose you to serve as those who are invited right into His very presence. And you are those who accomplish His purposes and act on His behalf in this world and in your prayers. Jesus loves us. He saves us. And He accomplishes His will through us as a kingdom of priests. And through all these things, glory and strength are ascribed to Him. And so we joyfully watch the clouds for Jesus because our God gives us grace and peace. And we joyfully watch the clouds for the return of Jesus because He is glorious and He is powerful. But then in verse 7, John interrupts the pattern. And we're going to get to our third reason here in just a minute. But in verse 7, he interrupts things and he says, Behold! Now, do you guys know what behold means? I mean, pay attention. This is important. Oftentimes in Jesus' ministry, he'd go to the people and he'd say, Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say to you. What was he saying? Pay attention. This is important. Several years ago, Oprah Winfrey had a guest on her show, a guy named Tom Cruise. I don't know if anybody of you have ever heard of him. Remember, do you remember that? I think it was like 2006. So some of you are a little too young to, to remember this. But, but it was the big news. And you have many memes of this now on your Facebook pages and every, social media. But Tom Cruise came to Oprah Winfrey and he just started dating his new girlfriend, later wife, Katie, Katie um, something, Holmes. Thank you, Holmes. 
Holmes. We know the name Holmes. So Katie Holmes. And so he just started dating Katie Holmes, and, and Oprah Winfrey, is just she's trying to interview him regarding a movie he's doing, and he's supposed to be promoting his movie. But what's Tom Cruise do? Behold! And, and here he is, and he jumps out of the couch, and he, he jumps on top of the couch, and you remember this day? He couldn't stop talking about this amazing love he had for this girl and how overwhelmed he was by all this. And, and what Tom was doing was saying, Behold! This is so exciting, I can't stop talking about this girl. She's changing my life. Now, that behold was temporary. But when Jesus says, Behold! It's like jumping on the couch saying, Pay attention to this! This is important. You've got to know this. This is important. And so He interrupts these three reasons why we watch the clouds And he says, Behold, He is coming in the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even those who pierced Him. All the tribes of the earth will wail on account of Him. Even so, Amen. And so we see third, that the world will watch the clouds and everyone will see. And he mentions two things that the Lord will accomplish when they see Him. Number one, those who pierced Him will be saved. And those who wail over Him will be judged. Now, the idea is this. First of all, he says, he says, look, watch, pay attention to this. This is important. He says, Christians, we joyfully wait for His appearing. But before we get any further, John wants to make clear that there are two reasons for, for the tribulation that's going to be described throughout the rest of the book of Revelation. There's a lot of things that this book is going to talk about that are going to be revealed in, in times to come. But, but as you think about Revelation and the tribulation and all those horrible judgments that are to come, he says there's two reasons that God is going to do all these things. There are two purposes for the tribulation period in that great time of judgment. When Jesus comes and He takes the church to be with Him, there's going to be this time that we call the tribulation period. And there are two purposes that the Lord is going to accomplish during this time. Number one, to save Israel. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. And that's where the imagery comes from that He uses here. In Zechariah 12, he says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. Who did Israel pierce? Jesus, when they crucified him. They will look on me whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. And then in chapter 13, verse 1, he goes on and says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And so here's the picture. This tribulation period is going to be this horrible, horrible time of God's judgment on the world. But in that time, God is going to gloriously save Israel. And sometime during that seven years, as a nation, the people are going to look and they're going to go, oh, Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus was our King and we crucified Him. And they will mourn over Him, but as they do so, salvation will come to Israel. And as a nation, the people of God Israelites are going to be saved. And so it's an amazing time and one of the main purposes, the main purpose 
of that seven-year period is to save Israel. And so God's not done with Israel yet. The second reason is to judge a world that has, has shaken its fist at God. For thousands of years, the world has continued to rebel against their Creator. And the world has said, we, we don't need Him. We've got this. We are good enough on our own. And so the world has rejected His Son, Jesus Christ. And, 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 and so this time of tribulation will be a time in which God finally says, enough. Enough. I've shown My grace and mercy to this world of, of sin for thousands of years, but there will become a time where God's going to say, enough. And He will bring judgment on this world in a, in a time like no other this world has never seen before. When Jesus ascended into heaven, it was only His disciples that watched Him disappear behind that cloud. But Revelation tells us when He returns again, the whole world will see Him. Everyone. But unlike the world, you and I are watching for Him. And He's going to come back for us early and take us to be with Him. And that leads us to verse 8, in which John closes this section with these words. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. And so here as we close our passage, John reminds us that Jesus is the first and He's the last. He's the A and the Z, if you will. Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. He's the A and the Z and He's everything in between. There has never been a time where Jesus did not exist and Jesus was not faithfully working out His plan. And so, you and I, let us joyfully watch the clouds understanding that He is faithful. The same God who created the entire universe and spoke galaxies into existence is the same God who promised to come back for us again. And so this week, each day when you go outside this week and you see the, the clouds in the sky, when you look up and, and, and you don't see any blue and there's nothing but clouds, or maybe it's a clear day and there's that one cloud coming over the horizon, when you see those clouds, let them be a reminder to you. Remember His promise that He has promised to pour out His grace and peace on you. Remember that He is glorious and powerful and He's worthy of receiving all credit for everything that He's done. And remember that He's faithful. Watch the clouds. And perhaps the very cloud you're watching will be the one that passes by when He calls us home. And we meet Him in the air. Jesus, we come before You and we are so thankful that we serve a God who is faithful. That You are a God who loves us. That You are a God who redeemed us. That You came and and You dwelt among us. You stepped out of Your glorious heavenly home and You came to live among us and be one of us. And He died in our place. And so this morning as a congregation, recognizing that You are the God who stands in our midst, that You walk in our midst as Your church, that You call us to be lights shining in the darkness. As we approach this book, I pray that You would teach us about ourselves. I pray that first we would have a, a, a clearer picture of how amazing You are. 
May we have a clearer picture of, of You, Jesus, as we encounter You here in this description of Yourself in these, in these pages. And may we have a clearer picture of what You've called us to be and how You've called us to live. And may we understand Your grace and Your peace, Your power and Your glory and Your might. And might we never forget Your faithfulness. And so no matter what we face this week, I pray that we would take comfort in those things. And might we joyfully watch for You as You come back in the clouds. Amen.